Well, that's it for episode 279. Wait, no, 278. 278. Well, that's it for episode 279. F*** me. (laughs) Well, that's it for episode 279 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name. Did I just do that again? You did. I can't read. Live from the Mundangerous Geothermal Springs in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 278 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about adventuring on the frozen tundra. But first the party looks beneath the surface in the Gates of Morning campaign. And later, Healing Warmth offers chicken soup for the soul in the Character Creation Forge. So this week, Total Party Thrill is brought to you by Kobold Press and Tome of Beasts 2, which is now available on the Kobold Press store. The publisher of the original smash hit Tome of Beasts, Kobold Press, has wrangled a new horde of wildly original, often lethal, and highly entertaining 5th edition compatible monsters to challenge new players and veterans alike. Mm, Speaking of challenges, I'd say these are mostly lethal Mm -hmm. creatures. That's true. I mean, what is the main complaint about the uh, monster manual? Not the hard are enough. Too easy. Yeah, the Tarask is not a CR thirty. No. So, Tome of Beast Two brings four hundred new monsters to fifth edition, from angelic enforcers, Sasquatch, and Shriek bats to psychic vampires, zombie dragons, and much more. In addition to the Tome of Beasts hardcover volume and PDFs, you can get monster pawns, virtual tabletop versions, and monster layers with beautiful maps at your favorite VTT platform of choice. It also includes the work of DSPN's very own Celeste Conowich, James Inchicasso, and a couple other no-name guys who may have had a bit of a hand in creating it. Definitely didn't have any hand in this copy. <laughs> So find out more at cobaltpress.com and tell them DSPN sent you. All right, Ishan, so where are we in the Gates of Morning campaign? So the Gates of Morning campaign is our 5th edition D&D game set in Eberron, a sequel of sorts to the original Morning Glory campaign. And in Korth, the austere capital city of Karnath, the party is chasing the killer. So trade manifests looted from the Mine Seed Elaine's apartment point the party toward the Caves of the Skeletal Hand, an empty series of warrens beneath the docks of the community ward. And after carousing in several bars for multiple hours, maybe longer than they needed Days. to, yeah, <laughs> a bartender recognizes a sketch of Elaine. The bartender says uh, this man was bad news, but he used to talk to a group of toughs in the corner. The surly group actually seems afraid of getting on Elaine's bad side and clam up when the party uh, begins to question them. But Bramble magically enthralls them with a tale of adventure. Eager to show off and impress the shifter, the group then volunteer to take uh, the party in their boats to the secluded caves where they occasionally ferried Elaine. Yeah, the beach is flooded most hours of the day, so pretty much the only way to get there is to approach by boat. Now, once inside the winding tunnels of the caves, the party finds no trace of life or the goods that the white lions used to store during the siege. There's just nothing here. So they head in deeper, and the tunnels lead inland and further underground. After about half an hour of trudging through the darkness, Lenore spots goblinoid tracks of all three varieties, goblin, bugbear, and hobgoblin. 
Soon after, the party spots a patrol of two goblins. Swish again transforms into Elaine, and since she doesn't speak goblin, she pretends to be hoarse, and Lenore acts as her voice. When they see Elaine, the goblin sentries are obviously afraid, but they express confusion at seeing him again so soon, and not alone for the first time. Mustering her best imperious tone, which, you know, she has many different imperious tones, Lenore demands that all of them be escorted inside, um, sort of, you know, pointing toward Elaine as the one who is very upset here. The guards comply, and they pass through side caverns. They can see fungal agriculture in one, soldiers training in another. Some of them are dens full of young goblin pups. Several dozen goblins are gathered in a central cavern lit by phosphorescent plants. They can see a wooden dais and an empty throne, but soon after, a seven-foot-tall female hobgoblin enters and sits down on the throne. So Zan can see that her half-plate armor is finely made and well cared for. She seems suspicious of the newcomers, but introduces herself as Zertold, the leader of this clan of the Kaxarat, and then she asks why Elaine has returned so soon. The goblins are busy guarding the area deeper within, just as he has asked them to. So Swish insists that he's just here to retrieve what he left, and attempts to cow the goblins with an intimidating presence. The bugbears vanish into the shadows, the hobgoblins begin pulling out their weapons, and the goblins just vanish. But tipped off by a faint sound above her head, Switch is able to narrowly dodge a large rock dropped from the ceiling. Zertold is completely convinced that she is not Elaine. The real Elaine, she says, would have begun glowing and lashed out violently by now. You are just standing there, like you have no idea what's going on. <laughs> so as far as the goblins know, she explains, Elaine is a celestial filled with light with a halo of energy around his head. Uh, the party obviously are not that. So Switch gives it up. She reverts to her natural form and she tries to level with the goblins, explaining that they're there on an important quest. But Zertold rejects her attempts at parley. Warden, though, spots something amiss. There's something about her that, that doesn't seem like it's on the up and up. And very quickly, he casts Dispel Magic, which breaks the enchantment controlling her. She immediately calls off the assembled goblins, uh, just as they are about to retaliate for this surprise spell, and then shaking her head to clear it, she thanks the party for their help, but she's not willing to let them pass just yet. And we'll find out what happens next, next week. So this week, we're continuing our series on adventuring in different kinds of terrain, and we are talking about the tundra. Shane, what's uh, what's the tundra? So it's uh, it's blue and white mana. Uh, it's a, yeah, or it's a half-ton pickup truck made by <laughs> uh, Toyota. Um, so in the real world, tundra is the coldest biome. Uh, it's you know defined by its treeless plains, low temperatures, very few nutrients in its ecosystem, and very little precipitation. It's like a you know an, an Arctic desert, if you will. I believe it is also still technically a desert because of the low precipitation. Yes, yes. Uh, it's probably associated with uh, high altitudes or high latitudes. 
uh, glaciers, permafrost, you know, windswept plains dotted with small herds of woolly animals and vicious packs of predators. And, you know, the only food you can find to eat there is lichens and moss that you have to boil down. And other people. <laughs> so, you know, like with most of the fantasy terrains that we typically talk about, you know, in a game, it's going to be different from the real world. Right? In the real world, a tundra biome has four different seasons, typically. Uh, in a game, you might actually just be on Hoth, where the entire planet is just a frozen winter all the time. And, you know, don't worry about the ecosystem. It doesn't actually make any sense. Yeah, yeah. Like in the real world, you've got like a short growing season, right, where you might have usable precipitation. And then you usually have like a, a longer extended winter um, because it tends to be pretty polar. You end up with like uh, season, like light season and dark season um, just based on, you know, how much uh, how much sunlight you get. Um, how many hours of sun you get each day, right? So uh, this could be whatever you need it to be for your game world. You know, geology need not apply. Right, like even in a regular game, if you're saying, yes, this is the real world, if you're in a tundra scenario, you're probably there for what, a few hours, a few days, maybe even a few months. It's the winter, obviously, because that's why it's very cold and snowy right now. Um, right. It doesn't matter to your party what happens in the rest of the year. Right. Um, and then also keep in mind, like, a lot of games are going to conflate tundra with, you know, snowy mountains or snow swept plains. Um, you know, even like fifth edition D&D has Arctic. That's that's it. You know, so is tundra grassland? No. Is it Arctic? Uh, not really. But it's close enough. You can kind of lump most of them in and, and maybe you have a little less snow in your tundra, but just as much cold. Right. So a lot of the things we're going to be talking about this episode, you can apply to a game in, you know, Montana in the winter or like standing on an actual glacier glacier or frozen asteroid. Um, excuse me, but Montana in the winter is actually a, a rain shadow desert and uh, high mountain <laughs> plains. It's a, a different biome entirely. This doesn't apply in any way, actually. <laughs> uh, Montana does have frost giants, though. So uh, that's true. Yeah. Uh, but you got to go into the mountains for this. <laughs> so um so actual humanoids on real tundras are typically nomadic hunter-gatherers, uh, following herds of whatever uh, large, often mammals uh, you might have. Um, caribou, sometimes reindeer. Maybe this is a game where you have woolly mammoths. Right. Yeah, or, you know, your um, <laughs> Arctic dinosaurs. <laughs> a concept that doesn't make a lot of sense, but, you know. But I love it, so we're going to go right. with it. <laughs> Uh, but you know, your saber toothed tigers and the like, right. Are, are going to be up there as well. Uh, so, so, and this is because agriculture is difficult, right? You have a short growing season. You don't have a lot of nutrients in the ecosystem. You have generally poor soil. If there's even soil, um, if there's even a soil layer above the permafrost. Um, so it, it just makes it difficult, uh, but in a magical world, you know, you can solve those problems. You can heat the earth, you know, you can, you can prepare. You, you can just have magical engines that are warming the ground and, and adding nutrients so that you can actually farm here. You could have, you know, an ice kingdom um, that, that exists above the frost line even with no agriculture or at least no agriculture in the traditional sense. Yeah, I think this is one of those times when you want to look at your game world and what is the logic behind it and, you know, try to have at least a bit of verisimilitude when you are explaining what it's like here in the tundra. So if people have access to things like a spell that creates food and water, 
you basically don't need to worry about where you're getting all of your nutrients. It doesn't need to be a hunter-gatherer society. You could have very large cities that are basically just sustained by magic, and you're here in the cold because it's easy to defend or you just like it, you know? Yeah. Or because that's where you were forced to when you founded this kingdom. Right. Know? And like, like all our history is here. Why would we leave? Right. Um, the other thing is that societies often become raiders to make up the gap in their nutrition. Right. So uh, if there's more temperate lands nearby, um, y you might become raiders in those lands. So if you're, you're kind of on the border of like tundra and more grassland or steppes, something like that, um, you know, Vikings in the real world took to the sea because like. It, it was hard to grow for most of the months of the year in uh, in in Sweden, so they left and went and raided more fertile lands uh, when they were least expecting it. Right, and this is going to be a lot more likely in a setting where you're sort of dealing with the realistic difficulties of living in the tundra. You know, it it, it makes a lot of sense. You're going to kind of need to answer the question like, how are these people surviving here, and how do they eat? Yeah, um, and then that'll also inform what kind of society they are. You know, like. If you have solved it magically, then you are probably a very magically inclined society. You're not going to be, um, you know, spooked by powerful wizards showing up. Uh, whereas if you're, you know, you, you stumble upon a society who makes its living by raiding its neighbors, um, they're going to be pretty bellicose. <laughs> they're probably going to be very skilled warriors. They might use magic, um, but they're not going to they're not going to be bullied easily, right? They're 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 going to only respect or probably only respect force, or at least your ability to protect yourself from them. Yeah, and this can be reflected culturally, even if these problems have been solved, right? If you have a far future tech society that just lives in these, you know, domed bubbles of climate control on the tundra, it might be that, you know, 2000 years ago, their ancestors were eking out an existence here. And a lot of those cultural traditions have carried over maybe in the way that they dress or, you know, the language or, you know, the way that they uh, welcome newcomers. These are these are touchstones that you can use. Right. So let's talk about some of the challenges for parties that need to either traverse the tundra or are uh, adventuring there. Yeah, so you mentioned this, um, but I think travel is an important component here because a lot of times tundra is sort of a transitional environment, right? Like you're going from uh, one point that's more temperate to probably one point that's even more remote or more difficult to survive in, right? Something truly Arctic, um, a, a snow-capped mountain, or like a, a, a difficult-to-reach entrance to, you know, some cave or cavern or dungeon or whatever, right? Like Portal it's, it's to Cania, you know, you got to go to cold places. Right. Yeah. So uh, being there is meant to be a challenge in its own right. So you want to play up, first of all, the cold. Um, as we mentioned, it's not actually always winter. There are seasons on Tundra, um, but it's going to be cold season whenever you're there because that's what you expect. Right. If it's if it's um, the brief summer while you're here, then this is not a Tundra game. Just reskin your grasslands, you know, <laughs> it's a it's a pleasant but um, <laughs> different environment. <laughs> Uh, so obviously you're going to be dealing with things like frostbite or hypothermia. Um, look at, you know, mechanical disadvantages that parties are going to need to deal with. You know, some games sort of almost hand wave this where they say, you know, as long as it's warmer than minus 20 degrees Fahrenheit, you're going to be fine if you brought heavy layers. But below that, then, you know, you're making exhaustion checks or endurance checks or, uh, you know, healing checks or something like that in order to keep yourself fully functional and, and make sure that you're not giving into, you know, confusion or, you know, uh, the other effects of things like hypothermia. Yeah. And, and again, depends on how your game 
models these things but you know frostbite might be an effect like cold damage has extra impact on you um when you're in a cold environment like this because it you know has the potential to cause permanent limb damage uh hypothermia you know that that might be a result of getting wet um, typically that is the biggest threat actually in these environments is, is if you're wet then you're you're probably closer to dying so any type of like water type spell or, or water effect could have increased uh, impact on you or, or you know, even falling into a, a river or getting out of a spring, um, you know, could, could cause risk to you. Right. Falling off your Viking longboat doesn't usually mean you die instantly. But even if you get out of the water and back into the boat, now you're probably dead. Th- this is also the type of thing that, you know, you can negotiate through preparation, Right. So if you have magical protection against these things or um, if you have the appropriate gear, right, like uh, crossing tundra in the modern in the modern world is not really all that inconvenient. You know, you, you put on your Gore-Tex and and um, you make sure you pack your your MREs and you bring a tent and a heat source and like you go. Um, you know, hypothermia isn't a big concern unless a disaster strikes. You know, frostbite, sure, in some environments on Earth, it could it could be a real challenge. But like, if you're well prepared, it's almost nothing. Right. If you're in space marine armor, it does not matter. Right. Um, and in those cases, like, think about what is the purpose of the tundra in your game? What does it serve as a story element? Um, and how important is the weather and the climate supposed to be? Right. So yeah, if you're um, a, a group of space marines and you land in a very cold part of, of this planet, it might mostly be flavor. It might define the types of creatures that you encounter or the terrain that you overcome, but you probably easily overcome it. But if this is like a Shackleton expedition type game, then ev- everything matters. Every like degree colder that it gets is going to matter. As wind speed picks up, um, this could you know actually kill people. Right. Yeah, I mean, that might actually be the biggest threat to you right you know like the, the 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 intentional predators are tend to be less of a concern than just the cruelty of the environment right the vagaries of all right we're rolling for wind speed this round let's see what happens right uh well speaking of weather um you, you can also play up sort of the more extremes too right where you might have rain um in a normal environment you would have something like freezing rain or sleet or hail um, you know, snow or even blizzards and whiteout conditions, you know, it's, um, it's a desert in terms of precipitation, but that's over the course of a year. Um, you can still have perfectly brutal winters on your tundra, um, and, you know, leave it to the permafrost or glaciers where that snowpack never really melts. Um, it becomes a, a big challenge for, uh, for you to cross as, as these conditions get more and more harrowing. Yeah. Um, go crazy with this, right? Like we said before, Hoth doesn't make any sense in terms of like actual weather conditions or precipitation or, or what have you. But, you know, have have what is interesting happen. If, you know, freezing rain is a thing or giant sized hail that could actually like cause bludgeoning damage and potentially kill people. Um, don't worry about if that necessarily makes sense from, you know, a, a time of year or or makes sense for the particular location that you're in. Obviously, you can have like magical or, you know, nanite-based uh, storms and weather conditions as well. This is a nice chance to give characters in the party who are familiar with this terrain or, or, or who are from the tundra 
an opportunity to, you know, explain things to other characters or to understand the dangers that you're facing. It's also a way to sort of surprise PCs who aren't from here, who are newcomers, who are just sort of like trying to trek through this. Like there are there are lots of almost surprises, like like traps, right? So yes, thin ice can be one. You could see off in the distance on this lake, you know, large, heavy structures, but, you know, you don't know that the ice happens to be thicker there and where you are, it's thinner. Or you get something like you're, you know, walking on the ground and it's frozen and then suddenly you come to a place where there are, you know, maybe hot springs nearby or geothermal energy and it's partially uh, melted and then you've got thermokarst and there's no way to know if you're going to sink through or you're basically dealing with like ice marshes. And they can change in the moment, unlike something like, you know, regular ground, which probably needs an earthquake spell or something to split open in the middle of combat. You know, if you're fighting on a glacier, that can break off within seconds and suddenly you're, you know, standing on a cliff or you're falling down a huge pit. There's a lot of cool ways to use avalanche as a story element, right? Like if you are on the snowpack and it begins to move, then now combat becomes extremely precarious and you know you probably only have a few rounds before all of you are sliding down a mountain and probably going to die. But if you're at the bottom of it and an avalanche is beginning. Yeah. Um, and that's also a great way to separate like the party from their preparation, right? Like they can't keep everything that they had prepared to make this an easy trip if they become victims of an avalanche, even if they all survive. Because let's be honest, environmental kill is not the most exciting way to, to end your character's life. Yeah, but it can be a good way to end an NPC's life or to threaten a village or something like that, right? Like, you can't save everything, you can't save everyone. Now is a really good way for players to decide what is actually important to them because that's the thing that they grab. Yeah, this was an easy trip as long as you had a guide. Uh, unlucky that they're the one who didn't quite make it. <laughs> Too bad you got angry about two pieces of gold Yeah, and killed them, but <laughs> yeah, hey. That, that, that shouting match of yours. <laughs> Triggered an avalanche. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about some Tundra encounters. Uh, so I, I think really iconic on Tundra are, are some of the like the animals that appear there, right? And and if you need to amp it up, make their dire versions. But you know, badgers, bears, polar bears, um, grizzly bears, right? Uh, wolves and and other type of pack predators. You know, uh, saber toothed tigers or whatever. Um, mammoths and dinosaurs, as you mentioned, right, can, can be great threats. Um, and, and those are just the predators, not even counting like the prey animals where a stampede of caribou or elk becomes suddenly an issue. Yeah, this is a cool way to really drive home the point that it's not necessarily that the environment is trying to kill you. It's just extraordinarily dangerous. And anything that exists up here is can very easily kill someone who's unprepared. You know, most of the creatures that you're going to meet are either like, you know, tiny prey that are not a threat or giant megafauna. Right. Then you can ramp it up with creatures that are sort of cold-based or, you know, exist because of the cold or have natural immunities to it. White dragons, frost trolls, frost giants are all going to, you know, make uh, their lairs or their civilizations uh, in the Tundra. All ice variants of pretty much any kind of creature you, you, you can think of. Ice elementals. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like any sturdy humanoid could be here too, right? Um, like your your orcs, your goblinoids, like they, they can all easily be here, even if they aren't necessarily like the frost dwarves, you know? Um, <laughs> Although they might be. So many might, settings might, have frost dwarves and frost yeah, elves. Yeah, exactly. You can also use this to signal to the party that something else is going on. Like if you think about the Lancer 
campaign setting. There's the Spari homeworld, which is basically Hoth, always covered in ice. And the civilization there is like uh, post-scarcity. So that's why no one moves off the planet. You can get all the food and warmth that you actually want. But, you know, the culture is sort of like Viking slash Maori mashup because it's 10,000 years in the future. But there are giant, for some reason, reptilian creatures that live beneath the ground. But that signals that it is warmer beneath the ground. You know, and then they just sort of burst out from uh, uh, the ground, giant kaiju, and start marauding. And, you know, it's basically a happy fun time for the Spari who now gets to fight giant monsters. The other thing you can run into with encounters is caverns, right? So frost caverns, if you will. But, like, these can be either natural caverns that are formed below the surface, uh, maybe through the permafrost or in the permafrost, depending on how deep that runs. Um, and that can be either worked um, so that, you know, somebody decided to build a cold dungeon instead of a, a stone dungeon. Um, or it can just be sort of the natural occurrence of, you know, tectonic or volcanic activity or, you know, the leavings behind of, of large burrowing creatures, whatever it is. Halaster was in a mood. <laughs> yeah. I'll make a cold dungeon today. So you can treat these like normal caverns or dungeons. Um, just, you know, put cold adapted inhabitants or creatures or automatons or what have you that aren't going to be affected by the cold or can use the cold to their advantage. Yeah, and then add cold effects, right? So you might still have the threat of hypothermia or uh, frostbite, but also you can have like icy theme traps, you know, uh, falling icicles, um, ice bridges that may may be uh, just as uh, as you know, perilous as, as any other bridge you find in a dungeon um, can easily have underground lakes that freeze over just the same. Yeah, you can play with this a bit. You know, if if you're dealing with sort of like fantasy levels of, of cold, you can have materials that are in a different state than you would normally encounter them, right? Like uh, a gaseous form that has solidified when, you know, a vampire was trying to escape. Um, and, you know, now it's basically frozen in a block of itself. Um, or, you know, as soon as the, the party enters with their like normal temperatures, things begin to uh, melt or off gas or, you know, now suddenly all the furniture is, you know, turning into uh, liquid and is uh, threatens to drown them. Which may lead you right into combat. So if you're fighting on the tundra, one thing that is probably going to come up is you probably aren't dealing with a lot of cover. You know, the sort of definition of it is that you have these wide open spaces. You don't have a lot of trees. Um, the scrub isn't going to provide a lot of cover. So, you know, unless there happen to be like large icy boulders somewhere or you've created terrain or, you know, there are crevasses to duck into, you mostly you're you're going to need to, need to just be fighting out. Yeah, and it also might be hard to hide, right? Like, you know, the, the scrubby brush of, of tundras is not going to be higher than like knee high. <laughs> so... Uh, if you're not laying completely prone in it, um, and even then, if it's even possible to lay completely prone in it, um, you know, you, you probably can't really hide very effectively. Yeah, your options for hardcover are, you know, boulder fields. Um, you could have shards of like large pieces of ice that have sort of been upturned or, you know, are sort of sticking jagged out of the ground. Uh, of course, in this instance, that means that like if you can fly um, or if you're fighting flying creatures like whoever you know ha um takes to the air has the advantage uh you might also have difficult footing on the ground right so in the same way that like scrubby brush land is not uh, an easy thing to hide in um if you're constantly getting entangled in um in in brushes that are up to your knees 
um, that, that might actually physically hurt you even, um, you know, it, it can be difficult. You can have uneven ground. You might have the, um, the effect of being tripped up by, by these brushes. Uh, you might have, like we said before, crevasses splitting the battlefield. Um, it might only be a foot or two wide, but it's one more thing you have to pay attention to, right? Lest you fall into it. Right. What if the battle is on a frozen lake or, you know, the, every, um, surface in this dungeon has been, uh, coated with, with ice. Like right. how quickly can you actually move over it? That's why you have to need to bring a frog suit with you because you stick. Sure. Lighting conditions can be difficult to deal with. Depending on the season, you might be in an area where it's twilight all day or sunlight all day or nighttime all day. If it's twilight, you you might have moon and stars to illuminate that it will give some low light. Um, but it can also be, you know, disconcerting, right? To to wake up and you know, to feel like you slept for a long time, but it's still dark or vice versa to, you know, be dead tired, but the sun is basically still up in the sky the same as it was. Right. Um, and think about like, you know, if you have vampires that are making their homes in the tundra, like they might have a lot of time where they can be active or they might have long seasons where they're inactive. Uh, wasn't that the plots of 30 days of night? Was it <laughs> not not a great movie? Uh, but yeah, like a great place to go escape to is uh, somewhere where the sun never sets. Um, or that would also be a great place for a cult. Right. Um, and then weather can, you know, it can be difficult to survive in, right? Like as a, as a existential threat for crossing tundra, but it's an entirely different threat when you're fighting in weather. Uh, you might have, you know, blizzards and hailstones that are impeding your progress or actually hurting you through the fight um, or, or could end up with like whiteout conditions where you can very, very like you have only see like what's in directly in front of your face makes for a rather difficult combat i will say (laughs) (laughs) no everyone's blinded great (laughs) right and and like even things you know blind sense things like echolocation are going to be very difficult in a raging storm right i mean yes you can see everything that's a problem when you're basically surrounded by giant uh pieces of ice right i think when when you're on the tundra and you want to have it matter this is a good opportunity to sort of dive into some survival mechanics depending on what you have in your game. You know, so if it doesn't really matter, then yeah, you can you can narrate the tundra um, or have it matter in maybe one scene, right? So if you think about Hoth again, it didn't really matter that the rebels were on an ice planet. You know, they weren't scrounging for food. They have spaceships. Um, certainly the Imperial walkers like don't care at all. And none of them actually fell into a crevasse, even though that would have been cool. Well, except for, (laughs) (laughs) uh, but the time it did matter is when Luke is basically stranded without the, you know, the, um, things that normally would, would keep him alive. And so you get a lot of the, the cool things where, you know, you have a large predator, um, you have an ice cavern, uh, and then you have Han sort of like jury rigging a way to keep Luke alive by like killing a Tauntaun, you know? Right. Yep. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> speaking of threats on, on Tundra, Yetis. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let them ambush you and then carry you back to their ice caves. 
Wendigos. <laughs> right. It's, it's Yetis, but terrifying. Uh, but you can, you know, you can lean into this where, you know, now you're caught unawares or have been ambushed and don't have the trappings that are normally going to keep you alive. And so it matters. Or you can do things like you got to get across this tundra. You've got to get, you know, to your destination, wherever that might be. Maybe it's a city and you'll be fine once you get there. But in the meantime, let's talk about hunting. You know, let's do a little Oregon trail. Right. Yeah. And I think that's important. Like you need to uh, have a sense of enduring the journey. Right. Um, you know, usually, like you said, like that, that destination might be more difficult mountains, even, you know, like this might be the easy part of the trip trip, but you still have to get there. Uh, it, it might be a dungeon or something where, um, you just have to get there and accomplish something. You might be crossing the tundra to, to get to a, a place that's going to be easier, right? You might be bordering verdant plains or, um, you might be able to catch your ship on the, uh, the Arctic sea or wherever it is. Um, but, but lean into like, you just have to survive, right? You just have to get through it. Yeah. I like the idea. You mentioned this before of the tundra being a transitional environment where, you know, you are, you're traversing it, but I like to put maybe a timer on that survival. You know, like if you are stuck in the tundra and you were not prepared for it, it may not be that the goal here is to get to the other side of it. The goal might just be we need to get out of it in some way. We we need to get back to a safe location. And basically the timer is running, right? There isn't any surviving this tundra out here. Like we're normal humans and the temperature is dropping. The issue is how long can we do it? And can we do it long enough for rescue or, you know, long enough for us to actually figure out uh, a way out of it before our time is up? Yeah. Um, and then you make that more exciting, of course, by... You're not making it voluntary, right? Like, what's the reason you're having to cross the tundra? Are, are you racing a clock against, you know, uncovering whatever is at your destination? Are you being chased across the tundra, right? Like, are you fleeing? Um, did you have a chance to actually, you know, set up an expedition? Or is this sort of a impromptu, we had to leave, this was the only direction we could go, and now we have to make the best of that we can of the situation? Or is it all of the above? right <laughs> we were chased out of a settlement and now we've decided to go somewhere else and we've got to get across this tundra before we die and we're being chased by predators right dire yeti i thought it was pretty dire to begin with but i guess not <laughs> riding frost giants this doesn't make any sense all right do you hear that ishan the terrible howl of the dire yeti well let's go to the character creation forge and see if we can't warm up but before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with you. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPT Cast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. Or find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. And join the conversation on Discord, where we're currently sharing recipes and memes. Uh, there's a link in the show notes. Total Party Thrill is brought to you this week by Hero Forge. Hero Forge offers fully customizable tabletop miniatures with dozens of fantasy races and thousands of parts to choose from. And hey, guess what? Tomorrow's Black Friday, and they're having a sale. Through November 30th, they're offering $5 off physical minis with the code EPIC. Loot, E-P-I-C-L-O-O-T. You can use that code to get your favorite custom miniatures in a variety of materials, including plastic or metal, Ishan. 
I like metal. You know, it feels uh, it feels more real, even though it is by definition not real. What could be more real than using their easy-to-use design tool and building the perfect miniature online using fully 3D in-depth character creator right from your web browser? Look, in Q4, they've added freaking bear folk. Uh, there's like dragon heads and wings and horns and tails. And I, of course, I'm going to put them on bear folk. Uh, they've also added high heels. So if you cannot uh, dress to the nines for Thanksgiving today, perhaps you can dress your character to the nines in your Black Friday order tomorrow. Uh, they've got furry body types, plant grade and digigrade legs, and a new piercing system. Uh, this bear is going to be amazing. They've also added epic weapons. I don't know what that means, but it sounds epic. <laughs> they got more more jaggedy bits, right? Isn't that what happens when you get more pluses? Yeah, well, okay. Well, then what is an epic base or epic wings then? <laughs> <laughs> more jaggedy bits. I guess you have to go to Hero Forge to find out. Well, you know how when it's really cold out and like, uh, you know... Y- y- you just want to get inside and cozy up around a warm fire. You know, it's like like the, the, the hearth itself is kind of what rejuvenates you and heals you. And, you know, your your aching joints hurt a little bit less. Uh, you know, a warm meal in your belly raises the spirits. Did you make Christmas in a character? I Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> we did build Santa Claus that one time. That's true. All right, so this is a this is a character that uh, that warms you up um, and and brings you back to life if you freeze to death. Correct. Cool. All right, what is the build? Life cleric thirteen, sun soul monk seven. I know it's, it's adorable. It's adorable. <laughs> we get so little value out of monk, but here we go. <laughs> so you're gonna start out. Just take all of your monk levels. You'll be fine. Um, so you'll start with unarmored defense, which lets you add your wisdom modifier to your, uh, AC instead of wearing armor. Uh, you'll get martial arts so you can, you know, fight with your, uh, knees and hands and feet. And then monk weapons, uh, your, your monk damage die will get up to D6. You'll get, uh, six key points and unarmored movement, uh, gives you an additional 15 feet of movement. And then... A flurry option is Radiant Sunbolt. So a D6 ranged spell attack can replace uh, your attacks. No, it's it's any attack in your attack action. You'll get slow fall, extra attack, and stunning strike. And then at level 6, what we're here for is Searing Arc Strike. Uh, it lets you cast Burning Hands as a bonus action, uh, and it costs you one key point plus one key point per spell level. So two levels uh two points at level one and then scaling up to a maximum of a level five burning hands uh if you spend all of your key points which of course reset on a short rest i mean that's what i would do why track key points when i can just level five burning hands right off the bat (laughs) exactly you'll get evasion and stillness of mind uh, to end a charm or frighten effect on you as an action so life cleric 13 gets seventh level spells Domain spells like Cure Wounds, Bless, Revivify, Mass Cure Wounds, Raise Dead, all of which are, you know, going to put the warmth back in you. Yeah, and all of which are going to flavor as, you know, um, the, the, the warmth, the healing warmth of the hearth, of the, the, the campfire, you know, gather round uh, and, and warm back up. Ladling soup. Here, drink this. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Also at level one, you'll get Disciple of Life, which lets you add two plus the spell level extra healing to any of your healing spells. 
your channel divinity, you can turn undead or preserve life, which uh, heals five times your cleric level of hit points divided among any number of creatures you choose within 30 feet. Then at level six, you'll get to use your channel divinity a second time per short rest, and you'll get blessed healer. Uh, you can heal yourself for two plus your spell level when you heal another creature with a spell. So you just more and more healing every time. Uh, it feels good to bring the warmth to others. Uh, at levels 8 and then 14, you'll get uh, 1d8 and then additional d8 on uh, an attack around with Divine Strike. And then at level 10, you get Divine Intervent. Uh, and then we'll cap this off. Your capstone will be 7th level spells. Um, of course, as a monk and melee cleric type, uh, you'll be making all of those flurry attacks uh, and you'll be adding your Divine Strike to each of them. So you'll actually be able to wade into the front line of combat while also healing everyone around you uh, whenever you need. You know, spells like um, uh, Mass Cure Wounds, uh, things like Healing Word that just take your bonus action um, really scale with all of your um, healing add-ons. All right, Ishan. So who is your healing warmth? So my healing warmth, I think, is leaning into the sun in Sun's soul. I mean, we talked uh, before about how you might have a tundra that is perpetually in daytime. The sun never fully sets. And I think my healing warmth is a member of a monastic order of ascetics who has set up their who have set up their monastery in a region like this, specifically because they believe it brings them closer to the sun. So she has been, you know, raised in this temple where they are training their bodies, of course, not only to be weapons, but also to resist the elements, very specifically the cold. You know, they're training outside. Think of like the traditional, you know, Shaolin monk montage where they're like, you know, running across parapets and balancing on, you know, bow staves, but they're doing all of this on the ice uh, and, you know, running across uh, a frozen lake and not slipping and, you know, taking polar plunges and things like that, right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> you know, the order of the polar plunge. <laughs> exactly. You're climbing out of it and like, you know, the, all the steam is coming off of uh, your bare skin. Uh, but it doesn't really matter because, of course, clerics get um, protection from energy. So you can give yourself re uh, resistance to cold damage anytime that you want. That's an important skill to learn. <laughs> right. Uh, I've toned my body to cast this spell to protect myself. <laughs> I could slow fall, whether it be physical distance or body temperature. <laughs> So I think that's her backstory. So when she's out in the world adventuring uh, with other people, her goal, of course, is to bring the light of the perpetual sun to, you know, these poor heathens who have to spend 12 hours a day in darkness. You know, that's probably why their morality is so, so gray. You know, they, they never quite understand what it's like to always be under the watchful gaze of the sun. And, you know, that means that she's healing as well but if she needs to get, get into it uh, because of course the best way to heal is to prevent damage in the first place and the best way to prevent damage in the first place is to kill the enemy um she'll be in the front lines uh throwing punches and uh and kicks and healing others to heal herself all right so shane who is your healing warmth uh, my healing warmth is a member of a militant order of the god of the hearth so they are, uh, you might say, iron chefs. <laughs> um, so yeah, so uh, you know, God of the Hearth, uh, God of Hospitality, kind of thing, where um, the the 
intent of the order, the the sort of act of worship is um, creating, you know, that homely environment, uh, uh, bringing that kind of warmth to uh, anyone who is downtrodden or, or in need. Um, so your your healing will be sort of that uh, the 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 infusion of that warmness and, and welcomeness of the campfire of you know the um, the heating soup over the stove uh, the the gathering round the fireplace um, but you're a militant order right like you you go out uh, you venture into the cold to bring that warmth to the coldest depths of the world. Um, you know, maybe that might be proselytizing to um, civilizations and societies that exist out there. And maybe it's just um, plumbing the depths and, and, and extracting whatever is down there so that no one else needs to go and, and drift so far from the warm hearth of home. Uh, but you take on that task. You take on those quests so that no one else has to. Um, and, you know, you're, you're perfectly comfortable to deliver a couple of... Uh, warm fists um, into the fray if necessary no no issue there you can even pick up a weapon you know we're a militant order we don't care about bloodshed uh we just care about making sure that people uh feel welcome yeah you know what else makes you feel a lot warmer getting hit that's true <laughs> can you feel the warmth of your own blood <laughs> right <laughs> I, li- I like this idea of the um the like angry forceful healer Who's just like live, damn you, live? Okay, that's that's not this. <laughs> it's, it's it's like a, a a monster in combat, but a great friend, you know, when it comes time to clean up and set camp. <laughs> Soup again, huh? Yeah, exactly. Cool. Whose bones are these? <laughs> <laughs> that's the third pillar of uh of my religion. Come on. Exactly. <laughs> Make great broth. All right, uh, before we wrap up, we want to take a moment and thank our Patreon supporters. Your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out all our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. And you can also leave us a five-star review on iTunes. If you do so, it helps other people find the show, and we'll read the review on the air. Well, that's it for episode 278 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Total Party Thrill is brought to you this week by Cobalt Press. And the Tome of Beasts 2, now available in the Cobalt Press store. The publisher of the original smash hit Tome of Beasts wrangled a new horde of wildly original, often lethal, and highly entertaining 5e-compatible monsters to challenge new players and veterans alike. Tome of Beasts 2 will bring 400 new monsters to 5th edition, from Angelic Enforcers, Sasquatch and Shriek Bats, to Psychic Vampires, Zombie Dragons, and so much more. I was a fan of the zombie dragons, personally. I, you know, like uh, we all saw Game of Thrones. We all want to bring that that dragon back from the dead. <laughs> uh, yeah, you you spent a lot of time building that dragon. Uh, players killed it. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Yeah. Breathe new life. Not technically, but you know what I mean, metaphorically, new, into new that old life. dragon. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also, if you uh, check the credits, you might spot a couple familiar names. Not yeah. ours. I mean, you will spot ours. And I guess if you're listening, we're familiar. But also, I mean, many other people whose names will be much more familiar. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, even some members of uh, of the Don't Split the Podcast Network, like Celeste Conowich and James Intracasso. 
So in addition to the Tome of Beasts 2 hardcover volume and PDFs, you can get Monster Ponds, virtual tabletop versions, and monster layers complete with beautiful maps. You can find all that at coboltpress.com and tell them DSPN sent you.